0: Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and if this is new to you and you would like to watch other ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the Past Interviews menu. This whole program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. If you appreciate it and would like to support it, in any amount. Um, There's a PayPal button on every page of the site, and there's also a donation page that explains other things for people who don't like PayPal. So my guest today is Lama Tsomo. Lama Tsomo is an American Lama, author, and co-founder of the Namchak Foundation. She followed a path of spiritual inquiry and study that ultimately led her to ordination as one of the few American lamas in Tibetan Buddhism. Lama Tsomo learned Tibetan to study with her teacher, Tulku Sangak Rinpoche, and now shares the teachings of the Namchak lineage in the US and abroad. She holds an MA in counseling psychology and is the author of the award-winning Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling?, which I think I'll hold up here. This is, graphically speaking, it's a good book to read, but graphically speaking, it's one of the most beautiful books I've ever been sent. I mean, it's just full of all kinds of cool, beautiful color illustrations, and it's on heavy stock paper, and just a beautifully done book. I think it got some kind of award, it looks like here. You see that shiny silver thing? (laughs) It's an award. (laughs) Um, So it's a great book. It's the first of a, a trilogy. I'll have to ask her about what the other books are going to be about as well as this one. But this one is an introduction and guide to Tibetan Buddhist practice. Lama Tsomo is passionate about reaching young people and supporting those working for positive social change. And I think she and I have a lot of interests in common, and um, we're going to be talking about those during this interview. So, welcome and thank you.
1: So glad to be here.
0: Good to meet you finally. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I managed to read your whole book and uh, listen to quite a few hours of various interviews and talks and whatnot with, with other people. I was just listening, finishing up the Dan Harris one this morning, and um, he mentioned in that interview that you were from the family that built the Hyatt Hotel chain or something? Uh, yeah. This is interesting. So I think this, this interview, as, as most are, will be kind of a mixture of biographical and then you know teaching and knowledge points. It always kind of goes that way. But it's usually good to start with the biographical. Like, Well, one question I had right off the bat and that will lead us into it. You're one of the only Western llamas. Or, or how many female Western llamas are there?
1: You know, I, I really don't know. Because there's
0: different <laughs> lin, lineages.
1: That's right. And I don't know who's been ordained and what lineages and that kind of thing. Uh, I think in this country it's more even between men and women. Mm-hmm. But... Um, that's good. Among, among Tibetans, it's much more rare sure. uh, for a female llama. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of got a free pass being an American, I think. <laughs> it, it allowed me to, first of all, make a lot of mistakes because I didn't know the culture and that kind of thing. And learning Tibetan, you can actually really stick your foot in it and get in more trouble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I, um, I think also it allowed me to be sort of outside the normal system and that may be true for other female Western lamas as well. Hmm. What I does the term
0: lama signify? I mean, you have priests and ministers and whatnot in different religions, different titles, and it doesn't always signify any degree of spiritual attainment. It's, it's more like they've done a certain amount of study and training and, and you know, gotten this, this title. But in, in your tradition, what does it signify?
1: Well, uh, being from a Jewish background, I was uh, fairly comfortable with a lot of the responsibilities and recognitions and so on that come with the term Lama. Mm -hmm. Um, So rabbi means teacher in Hebrew. Uh, My teacher did uh, expect me to teach. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm out there doing that and writing books and things like that. And there's also that... um, community leadership, uh, spiritual leadership within the community, that is a responsibility that's expected. And um, there's the lineage piece, which we Americans um, aren't going to be automatically familiar with because, uh, you know, we're so new. But certainly within Judaism, there are long lineages. And within Tibetan Buddhism, there's uh, lineage that can be traced mouth to ear, mind to mind, all the way back to the Buddha. Mm. And so the distilling of knowledge and the passing on of the gems uh, from generation to generation is uh, seen as extremely important. And so I got, I was very lucky. I was uh, Tukusanga Rinpoche's um, first Western guinea pig to go through all the levels of teachings and he's kind of like well let's see what happens when we do the channels and winds practice you know the energy practices and let's see what happens when she gets this you know and i i did the traditional hundred day channels and winds practice as part of the llama training do you
0: want to uh, mention to explain what that is or is it just a case in point kind of example of something you did
1: well i mean i can't because I mean, nobody's
0: going to know what that means but
1: right yes yeah, so it's um working with uh breath and your internal energies on subtle levels, subtle Mm -hmm. energy levels, and also with uh, physical postures Mm -hmm. and, of course, meditation of particular kinds, Mm -hmm. and you sort of put all that together, and you can, true transformation, Mm -hmm. I guess is the simple way to say it, from the inside out, and getting rid of a lot of the Slough that causes our windshields to be, you know, pretty smatter, smattered and warped and everything like that so that we can see reality as it really is. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's a step on the way to, you know, truly seeing what the Buddha saw. Okay,
0: good. I'm sure we'll come back to that metaphor of cleaning the windshield. Or, <laughs> who was that famous poet that talked about cl- uh, cl- cleaning the windows of perception? I forget. Anyway. And, of course, there's references to that sort of thing in all the different traditions. You know, There's the thing in the Bible about seeing through a glass darkly, you know, and then having it be clear. Exactly. And, and Hinduism talks about it. Everybody does. And even, you know, modern science, in a way, in terms of neuroplasticity and, you know, clearing the sludge from our mental functioning and <laughs> that kind of thing. So,
1: well, it's kind of uh, building new roads and turning them into highways and... Um letting other ones become unused and eventually break up and have grass growing (laughs) up through it, that kind of thing.
0: So how did a nice Jewish girl from Ohio or wherever you were from uh, get going in this direction?
1: Yeah, well, that's a bit of a story. Um, You know, as Westerners, we don't automatically, we aren't automatically born into a particular lineage or something like that. Uh even the Judaism of my family was, first of all, we didn't practice much.
2: Right. My
1: father didn't practice at all. He, he just felt, you know, he needed to be as good a person as he could be, and that was kind of where he left it. My mother had more spiritual leanings but didn't really express them that, that much. I went to Sunday school, hated it. Hmm. But before I went to Sunday school, we were living in this little town in Ohio, and there were only five Jewish families. And so, uh, We all got together on Sundays, and one parent after another would trade off going off with the kids and telling a Bible story, like just telling it and talking about it with us. And I remember even as a little kid, I I loved that. Then we moved to the big city, Chicago, and I could go to a temple Sunday school, and I hated it. (laughs) It was totally disengaged. There was no spirituality, no life to it, no meaning, and I just... The, we were friends with the rabbi, and he was wonderful. His name is uh, Rabbi Shalman, Herman Shalman. And he actually taught me a fair amount just in, in passing and also when I listened to his sermons. So I um, met with him after I'd been laminated. And uh, he was very curious about Buddhism and hadn't had a chance to talk with anybody about that view. And when we compared views, it was astonishingly similar, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: really quite amazing. And then um, I did a series of interfaith dialogues with Matthew Fox, and again, we kept finding so much uh, that was the same, you know, in the essence of the meaning, that uh, the fellow who was sort of overseeing it all was like, come on, can't you guys disagree about something?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
0: Yeah, I've often felt that if you could get Jesus and Buddha and... Krishna and Muhammad and all of them in a room together, you know, they just totally see eye to eye, you know, it's just different cultures, different languages, different times in in history, but um, they're all talking about the same thing.
1: Yeah, well, supposedly there was a gathering of mystics from various traditions. I don't know if this is true, but, you know, urban legend, whatever. (laughs) Anyway, they all got together, and when they talked about the religious uh, points there were debates and differences and so on. But when they talked about their transcendent experiences, mm. they were all saying the same thing.
0: Yeah. I think one thing you and I want to get into today is a discussion about the sort of you know, science and, and spirituality interface and, and how they each have something to offer one another. Now, there was something about um, some profound experience you had when you were fairly young, and it lasted for half an hour, and you were able to sort of re- reference it even to this day. And w- What was that?
1: Well, I was in college, and I was visiting my boyfriend, and I was bored, and he was a Baha'i. Mm-hmm. And he was busy doing his homework, so that's why I was bored. And luckily, he had to do his homework for more than a half an hour. So <laughs> I picked up this Baha'i prayer book. So it wasn't about the philosophy or anything, it was the prayers Mm. that are designed to put you in that place, Mm. right? Uh, The place of truth. So dharma, by the way, means truth. Mm. I was reading the prayers and all of a sudden my normal mind, uh, amazingly enough, shut up for a minute. (laughs) And I saw what the words were referencing, Uh, words are, you know, a vehicle for that. And somehow I, I was pointed there and landed there. And I was sort of astonished and I saw these, there was this sea of sparkles, Mm. (laughs) like glitter. And there were these weavings together, like threads. And I understood that, you know, that was actually reality. And then it can be woven together in, infinite ways hmm. and we can choose to make sense out of it however we do using the lens of habit
2: hmm.
1: now i have words for this now but i didn't then um at that point i was just kind of slack-jawed you know just hmm. watching this and i could see that the everything i thought was solid wasn't solid hmm. and so i you know i i realized that if i could really get all my habits out of the way. I could pass my hand through the book, you know, or the desk, or whatever. Theoretically,
0: yeah. I I remember, maybe it was in your book, I I read something recently about this theoretical physicist who got so deeply into the understanding of the insubstantiality of matter that he got a little unbalanced and he was afraid to walk across the floor because he felt he would fall through it.
1: <laughs> yes, he wore big boots oh, thinking yeah. <laughs> that would help. And of course, nobody told him that the boots probably weren't any more solid.
0: Than anything else, yeah.
1: <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, that was in my book. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> That's funny. Did you ever go through a drug phase? LSD or anything like that?
1: I experimented very little with it, just, just a tiny bit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. My sense was that it was like you're walking through this dense forest, and the l s d helps you to climb a tree so you can see further ahead, mm-hmm. but you still have to get down and walk,
0: yeah, I like that metaphor, yeah, yeah, I mean, it does for some people gives this sort of unforgettable experience that there's more to life than meets the eye, but you got that from reading the Baha'i book and having that opening
1: the prayer book, yeah, the prayer it book. was the Baha'i prayer book, yeah. Um, and so that set me on the journey, because I was like, well, I want to live from that reality, because I know that's the true one.
2: Yeah.
1: And I figured that, you know, there were spiritual traditions that could help me do that, but it took me a very long time to finally come around to, you know, from the spiritual smorgasbord that we have in this country, um, till I found my way uh, to uh, Buddhism, and it sort of felt right, but then I tried Theravada, and that wasn't quite it, I tried... Mahayana in the form of Zen. Mm-hmm. That wasn't quite it. And, um, finally I stumbled onto Vajrayana because a friend of mine who lived down the hill from me invited a Western Lama to her house and he, you know, gave a little talk and like a QA. So I attended that and I thought, oh, now this sounds like this one's for me. Mm. I liked that it had lots of tools. So as a psychotherapist, I liked that, you know, there there were different ways in. I liked that there was a very highly uh, developed use of archetype. Mm-hmm. And my emphasis in my studies uh, was Jungian. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, felt at home with that. And I liked that there were both male and female deities to be revered and to actually inhabit and so I, you know, I thought, well, this is, this could be a really transformational path for me. And I like the balance of masculine and feminine. Then I found my way slowly to Rinpoche. I started studying the ngundro, which is a collection of five practices. And when I was about to do uh, the next practice, you know, in the, in the series, I was in retreat with this American Lama outside of Santa Fe. Rinpoche dropped in and he was going to teach the very thing that I was doing next. Mm. Just so happens. Good well, timing. I didn't get, I still didn't get that he was my llama. Mm. <laughs> A little thick headed. Um, anyway, I got some teachings from him. And then the next time he came to my house to teach the American Lama. But what ended up happening was he and I connected, and uh, the American Lama ended up not studying with him anymore. He already had been studying under another Lama anyway. But that was the beginning of that very deep, intimate, transformational connection with my Lama.
0: Yeah. And uh, you actually learned Tibetan, which is very impressive. That's that's no mean feat. Uh,
1: No, (laughs) no. And I was in my mid-40s when I met Rinpoche, so I thought... Yeah,
0: they say it's hard to learn languages when you're older, so that's impressive. How well do you speak it, actually?
1: Fluently. Really? Uh, I mean, yeah, I've uh, translated uh, simpler Dharma talks and and teachings, and sometimes there wasn't a translator for meetings or something, and so I translated for those, but I'm not actually a translator. Right.
0: I know that... um, in your interview with Dan Harris, you're talking about life, you know, reincarnation and having had a relationship with your Lama in previous lives, and and will have in future lives. And Dan Harris had a hard time swallowing that, but I have no problem with it. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I,
1: well, if we believe in the you know the idea of recycling, uh, it's hard to believe that uh, if consciousness is you know stands apart from the body and inhabits the body, then when the body dies. What, you only have one body that you ever incarnate in, I, that, and the, the soul is eternal? I mean, that doesn't make any sense to me.
0: Yeah. Well, one, one reason some people have a problem with it is that, you know, they feel that there is no ultimately no personal self, uh, that, and that the, the sense of one is, is kind of a delusion. And, mm-hmm. and if there isn't, then how could there be reincarnation? Because what is there to go from one life to another? But I, I, I think there's something missing in that logic, because even if the personal self is ultimately not real, there could be some less ultimately real personal self that continues to reincarnate until it doesn't.
1: Yeah. So it's a, a habit, and it's sort of like um, whatever undercurrent it is that... Uh, causes you to see a wave come up and down and up and down and up and down so that's not the same water though in each wave and they're not the same shape but there's something that we feel is a continuum
0: yeah
1: so in tibetan uh, the term uh, means mind stream Mm -hmm. and i think that begins to get at and and maybe those were the streams that i was seeing in my uh vision um But, you know, that begins to get at, I think, this paradox that, no, you know, it isn't any more real than anything else. But you also can't say it's totally unreal, right? Right. So uh, the famous saying uh, for Tibetans is, not is, so it's not, you know, like something you can grab a hold of. Not isn't, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: not both, not neither. Yeah. So you can't, you know, it's not easy to land on what this is. We can only use metaphor, I think, as our best way of pointing at it.
0: A good metaphor they use in Vedanta is that they have the term mithya, which means dependent reality. And they say, okay, you have a pot Mm -hmm. it's made of clay. And ultimately, there's only clay. You know there's no pot, you could have different types of pots and different clay things, and there's really only clay, but actually, there are pots because you can use them and put things in them and they use the same thing with jewelry like it's only gold, but you have earrings and rings and all kinds of different stuff that is you know takes particular shapes or forms
1: yeah, so that gets back to the waves idea because uh, the waves are actually part of the whole ocean they aren't separate, mm-hmm. but we can point to this temporary shape and say, oh, there's a wave. Yeah. Uh, But it doesn't stop it from being the ocean. Okay.
0: So we're kind of talking about here about something that you wanted to talk about, which is the three kayas, which Mm -hmm. are like different levels of manifestation or different levels of reality. So let's talk about that more explicitly for a while.
1: Yeah. So the dharmakaya um, corresponds to the, the depths of the ocean part. And it's <laughs> <laughs> happy allergy l- season. a little wave yeah. on the ocean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a sound wave, for yeah. sure. Anyway, um, I've got my dogs around, so they may be making noises. Oh, we do background. too.
0: We have a couple of them here. One of them is <laughs> sleeping. The other one may see a squirrel and start barking at any time.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, the Dharmakaya is um, sort of like before matter or before form yeah I think before manifestation yeah and so it's total potential
2: mm-hmm.
1: so it's ultimately powerful it's connected to everything right because mm-hmm. it's the depths of the ocean it's um, also it's not like this even though it's not substantial it's not this like dead vacuum it's actually totally aware. So that's a quality of it is awareness. Mm-hmm. And because it's connected to everything, uh, it, it, another quality is ultimate compassion, right? right. Um, so those are some... Qua- and and joy is another quality that I personally have experienced in changing channels and tuning into that Dharmakaya channel. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is another thing I love about Tibetan Buddhist practices: you get some very Uh, effective methods at changing channels, which normally we can't do. We're stuck on one particular channel, very small particular channel. Anyway, so the Dharmakaya then has uh, this tendency of wanting to express. uh, And so it brings forth form. And then the form comes back into the Dharmakaya and so on. So there are two then levels in the form form. Uh, aspect. The first one that we come to is Sambokakaya and that's really like an archetypal um, level. Like a uh, so, exactly. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And so that, through that, then you can then have the really um, vast multiplicity of differentiation with the Nirmanakaya mm-hmm. and Nirmanakaya. I think could best be translated as body of manifestation Mm -hmm. so there you have the three bodies kaya's Mm -hmm. Uh, and they're not separate you know they're like it would be like separating the two sides of one coin or something like that they're working all together and the idea is that there is this pouring forth and going back into the emptiness and you know luminosity and Uh, emptiness, and so on, back and forth and back and forth, many times every nanosecond. And David Bohm, the scientist, would absolutely agree. Hmm.
0: Some people are working on a documentary about David Bohm now. I don't know when it's going to be. Really? Yeah, this guy contacted me and asked if I could introduce him to Robert Thurman and if I knew any. Physicist that might be appreciative of David Bohm. So I gave him some David Bohm. So we gave him some recommendations, but the, the, oh, there's going to be a whole one. documentary about him. Hmm? Oh,
1: I have one a name of somebody. Oh
0: good I'll put you in touch with this guy, too. Yes Yeah, <clears throat> don't know when it will be finished, but it sounds like it's a pretty significant project with a bunch of people working on it
1: Yeah, No, this guy knew and was friends with David Bohm. Oh, great. Uh, and And well, I'm okay, glad well, I mentioned we'll that
0: because I can put yeah. you in touch with that guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so this whole thing you're talking about again. I like to sort of compare with other traditions because it it's like the perennial philosophy. It's like the, the it it sort of lends. It's like a, you know you like science, and so do I. Um, not that either of us are scientists really, but the um, you know in the scientific method, you take a hypothesis and then you test it, and if it if you test, you know. Confirms it, or, you know, its validity, then maybe another scientist wants to test it. And the more people who test it, the more legitimate it becomes, the more trusted it becomes.
1: Yeah, and, it graduates to theory.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it sort of gains credibility. With something like this, I mean, there are parallels in other traditions. The The whole idea of gross and subtle. I mean, in in the Vedic thing, it's, you know, Adi Bu is the world, world the Adi... Adi Daiva is more of the subtle level, and, and Adi Atma is the unmanifest level. And and there are probably other ones too. I don't know why I went off on this tangent, but maybe yeah. you have a response to what I just said.
1: Well, I think you were uh, bringing in the parallels from uh, the Hindu tradition, Vedic tradition. Yeah. And of course, that's what the Buddha emerged from, right? He True. studied that thoroughly. Yeah. So we <clears throat> have some parallels there, and that's not surprising. And Matthew Fox. Uh, talks about Meister Eckhart and... In the Christian tradition, yeah. Right, and so the Godhead um, <clears throat> it has a lot of parallel to the Dharmakaya, I believe. Yeah.
0: And then you mentioned David Bohm, and in, in physics there's a mm-hmm. very clear understanding that there's a, sort of an unmanifest level, you know, s- primordial level, and then from that, sequential degrees of of symmetry breaking and, and manifestation and, and emerging concreteness or apparent concreteness. Um, it's just Apparent
1: is the operative word that's there. That's the
0: operative word, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, because how it appears... Uh, to one being can be quite different from another. And anybody who's been married knows, even <laughs> as human <laughs> beings, we can see things differently. But uh, it can be a lot more difference than that because we're all on kind of a similar channel. And that's why we can see each other because we're tuned into this channel. Yeah. And so we're interpreting the holo- the hologram uh You know in these ways Mm -hmm. but if you look at a holographic sheet it just looks like a bunch of pools like somebody it looks like somebody threw um, a little piece of gravel into a still Um, pond and so there are all these circular ripples going out and uh, overlapping each other Mm -hmm. it doesn't look you can't see any form in particular and then if you shine a light through it you can see a form but it's still
2: yeah
1: yeah exactly Mm -hmm. and I think you have to have two of them, um, then you see a 3D form, and it's almost like you're seeing it through a window, and mm-hmm. if you move to the side, you can see parts that you didn't see yeah. you know, before, and the other side you see into those parts, which is uh, extraordinary, and mm-hmm. it's insubstantial. Yeah. It's a nice parallel, you know, a nice uh, metaphor.
0: Another cool thing is if you cut the hologram in half... Like if it's a piece of film and then shine a laser through, you still see the same image. So the, that that brings out the principle: of the whole is contained in the part. You can you can cut it in quarters; you still see the same image. You start losing resolution after a while, but the whole yeah. thing is contained in every part, which has kind of a spiritual connotation or or corollary. Yeah,
1: yeah, and the Tibetans were aware of this holographic uh, quality to um, the universe.
0: Yeah. So this whole thing about, you know, reality being something and then all of us having different views of it or, you know, peepholes into it and our perspectives on it, like the blind men and the elephant, would you agree that whatever enlightenment is, and let's get into discussing what it is, it's a kind of a an appreciation of reality as it is in and of itself as opposed to some kind of Distorted or adulterated perspective on it through a, a cloudy
1: lens. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, shall we? Yeah, get into a definition it. of it. Okay. So let's see. My best definition of it, and of course, I should back up and say this: when um, early on, when uh, his students asked the Buddha to describe uh, enlightenment and you know the state, you know what he saw. He fell silent. Right.
0: Because what could he say?
1: Well, because any words would be concepts. And right. this is beyond concepts. And so I'm uh, stupid enough to do what the Buddha was wise enough not to do. <laughs> and I'm just going to sort of point in the direction, because yeah. that's all we can do with words. And but, you besides- know, he did that,
0: but then he spent a lifetime trying to explain it or was trying to help people understand it. And there's books
1: and books and books going around and
0: round about all kinds of stuff. So, you know.
1: What he mainly did was give us the methods by which we could experience it. actually directly experience it ourselves right. and not only clean the windshield but finally take away the whole windshield and just be in it and see it directly. And there's this line you cross of no return, as I understand enlightenment, mm-hmm. uh, where you've now really landed back in that full ocean. And you're aware of all three levels, all three kaya's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how they are, you know, different parts of one thing. And you also have the channel changer. You can tune into the consciousness of any being and all the different channels and levels that are, uh, out there. And there are probably infinite numbers of them, but you can tune into any of it because you aren't fixated on a particular one. You've now joined with the whole. So there's also Uh, If if you're really joined with the whole ocean, then you've got all the knowledge of the ocean. So that's... um, And you have the compassion of the whole ocean because you're connected to everyone and you are living from that. And uh, all wise, uh, you know, all knowing, all loving, and so on. And a state of complete uh, permanent bliss Hmm. because you've gone home.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's beat around this bush for a
1: while. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I went past the bush, but okay. No, yeah, it was let's great what you're go saying. go back to the bush. Now, let's go back to
0: the bush. <laughs> the, yeah, there's... When you talk to different people, one thing more and more people I find saying is that their feeling is that there's no end to it, that uh, even once you attain, quote-unquote, enlightenment, whatever, however we define that, whatever it may be, there's still room for growth in some dimension. Um, in, in, in different ways, maybe many dimensions. Um, and, you know, there's questions that people bat around, like, you know, could you be an enlightened asshole? You know, I mean, could you be a, a jerk uh, and yet be enlightened, and, and, but, but behaving reprehensibly in some way? Uh, and there, there's, there's people who say things like, well, you know, there's a, absolutely no free will, and, and it may be that, you know, you're enlightened and your, your role is just to, you know, behave strangely or or inappropriately or or something i don't know and and i when i hear that kind of stuff i feel like not even using the word enlightenment because it it to to my mind if i were to use it it would have a sort of a a superlative connotation and and um and, which implies that there's no further development after that. And, and somebody who says that you can be an alcoholic, let's say, and enlightened, and in fact I was going to ask your opinion of that, that Rinpoche guy that was notorious for that, um, to me, such a person is half-baked, and, and we should not we should reserve the term enlightenment for something more profound than that. So I've talked a little too long there, but you know what I'm getting
1: at. Yeah, well, I actually enjoy the conversation. Yeah. So uh, it's a lot of food for thought, but I I think, you know, you're trying to point to something that's an interesting sort of discernment to try to make. I don't think it's possible to be enlightened and therefore feeling everyone in the whole ocean, so ultimate compassion, and do any sort of violence to anyone. You you just wouldn't want to, you know, that's not where you're coming from. Uh, So it wouldn't make any sense uh, that somebody would do that. Um, so if somebody is, you know, using violence in speech or action or uh, being an asshole, then how could they be coming from that view of the whole ocean at all times? And once you cross that line of no return to true, full Buddhahood, enlightenment, um, you don't, like, flip back and forth. You're, you know, you're just there. Yeah. Which, so I, I don't think you could be uh, an alcoholic and an enlightened being, you know, fully enlightened. You could be highly realized mm-hmm. and addicted to alcohol. But you're not, you haven't crossed that line that I'm speaking of.
0: Yeah. All right, well, here's one for you. I know Buddhism doesn't talk too much about God, but um, if, we, if we think of the totality as God, and it's all, you know, unbounded awareness, and infinite intelligence that that kind of thing, containing everything, orchestrating everything, then there's tons of violence in the universe. Right here on our planet, there's animals killing each other and so on. And so if you attain oneness with that, what's to say that your particular expression as an individual might not reflect some violent tendencies because apparently God does yeah. you know, if you consider the totality to be God. And in, in the Gita, Lord Krishna said, you know, Arjuna, realize the self and then get out and fight this battle you have to fight. I don't know, what do you say to that?
1: Uh, well, there are a couple of things. First mm-hmm. of all, there's a difference between being pissed and acting violently out of being pissed off. Right. Uh, and uh, what they were asking Arjun, Arjuna to do, mm-hmm. um, they were asking him to act in what you could call a wrathful manner where you're bringing compassion right along with it.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, so for example, in a previous life of the Buddha, he was on a boat and there were 500 bodhisattvas on the boat and a couple of pirates. And they, the pirates, he heard, overheard them plotting and scheming to kill all of the bodhisattvas so that they could Take over the boat and all its contents, um, and so he thought, well, you know, first of all the the killing of all those Bodhisattvas would be a terrible thing, and he should really prevent it and second of all, um, he was thinking of the the souls of those two uh, pirates, yeah. and what would happen to them if they killed five hundred Bodhisattvas. Mm uh and so out of compassion for everyone he killed the two pirates mm-hmm. and he he fully expected he would go to a hell realm or something some mm-hmm. terrible you know have some terrible fate but because of his motivation um and his actually preventing uh the suffering of you know everybody involved um that's not what happened he didn't go to a hell realm yeah um so i think i've uh you know to, grabbed on to just one piece of what you're talking about. Um, so why violence in the world? And I've thought a lot about this because I was born right after the Holocaust and I'm Jewish, yeah. you know, for example. Um, and it wasn't until I came upon uh, some Buddhist understandings that I felt like, okay, that makes sense. So, you know, the Buddhists, as you know, don't personify reality and and point to it and give it a name like God mm-hmm. you know they talk about Dharmakaya and some and so on yeah. and it's aware um, but it, they don't personify it so you know nobody's gonna think that it's a guy with a beard and puppet strings
0: yeah okay. no I'm not thinking that either I mean, I'm thinking oh, right I'm being of, yeah. extreme right
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just to pick a really extreme as I'll agenda. say to
0: Sam Harris if I ever get to interview him I don't believe in the God you don't believe in
1: Yeah, right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and what's the big deal? I mean, that's, you know, because I'm not talking about that. And actually, when I talked with my rabbi, he said, I don't want to really call it that either. I want to call it the mystery. I've always wanted to call it the mystery, Mm -hmm. because we don't understand it it's much bigger than what we mean when we talk about God. So that was another point of overlap for uh, Rabbi Shalman and myself, and we were, you know, fascinated by that. And the ocean waves thing, he, he said, Oh, that's wonderful. Did you think of that? Like, no, it's an old Buddhist metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> Very old. Anyway, um, so if you've got um, a whole bunch of these um, flecks of consciousness that are covered over with this misunderstanding that they're separate from all of reality, then they're going to. Uh, Well, I like to, you know, pick, again, the example of the ocean and the waves. So if one wave thinks I'm separate from everything and everyone else, then all of a sudden I have all these needs. And I'm also protecting myself as a wave because now I'm very fragile, right? I could get broken apart. And as a matter of fact, I'm gonna go back down into the ocean and that's inevitable. So all of that, you know, makes a lot of insecurity and fear and grasping and pushing away and so um there's talk of the uh five types of uh, afflictive emotions that if you look at their essence are actually five aspects of pure uh how can i say the intention of the dharmakaya as it comes through the sambhogakaya into form hmm. uh that's the first template you see is those five different facets of wisdom hmm. um so you know it gets more and more occluded as ego grasping layers get put on top of it and habits and habits and more habits from that point of view. And so then we're all blindly sort of, now I'm going to pick another metaphor, I don't know if it's mixing metaphors, Has it, have I waited long enough? It doesn't it matter.
0: Okay. We can roll with it.
1: All right. <laughs> well, speaking of rolling, everybody's kind of roiling in a mud pit blindly. And so people are knocking each other with elbow in the face and, you know, knee in the back and, you know, all this as we're, you know, thrashing around in our ignorance. And we're all trying to be happy and we're all trying to push away suffering. So we're grasping after the happiness, pushing after the suffering. We try to do that all day, every day and in our dreams at night. How exhausting all the time, right? And, of course, we're in that misguided state, we're going to do a lot of terrible things to each other, thinking we're pursuing happiness.
0: Yeah. Yeah, thinking, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do.
1: Right, and seeing each other through this very occluded lens, this warped, splattered windshield, so they can't even see who the other person is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's that, you know, as well, uh, as we're, you know, stuck on the different channels and so on.
0: So we were talking about what enlightenment is and, you know, whether you could be an enlightened jerk or something. But I I think it would be safe to say that in an enlightened world, if such a thing ever happens, where a significant percentage of the people are in a very high state of consciousness, if not enlightened, it would be quite heavenly, quite harmonious. There there wouldn't be a bunch of enlightened people sort of going at each other's throats, you know.
1: Yeah. No, I I agree. And so, you know, if people want to try and make a type of government government that is a utopia, they can't unless all of the citizens happen to be enlightened.
0: Yep. You don't get a green forest unless all the trees are green.
1: Yeah. So, and then you don't need any rules at all.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's true. You know, and Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching, you know, about how the more people are in tune with the Tao, the less government there needs to be. It's just, you know, society kind of governs itself if people are really in tune.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Now, you said a few things when we were defining, when you were defining enlightenment that seem a little phantasmagorial. You know, there's talk of people having rainbow bodies and leaving nothing but their hair and nails, and you said something about knowing all beings or what all beings are thinking or feeling or experiencing or something like that, I wonder if that's actually anyone's real experience. You probably would say that your Lama, for instance, is enlightened. Let's presume that he is, I don't know. If so, is he actually listening to our conversation and and reading the thoughts of all 7 billion people in the world? Or does one necessarily have a rather limited attention beam, even if the awareness is unbounded on on the dharmakaya level.
1: Well, the Dalai Lama has said many times that he's not a Buddha, that he's not actually enlightened. Okay.
0: Let's say he were a Buddha. some case in point. Let's say say Joe Schmo is is totally enlightened. Is his experience such that he's actually reading the thoughts of, or knowing the experiences of everybody in the universe? Or is that really not what enlightenment is? And it would be sort of like unrealistic to define it that way.
1: I think if you're speaking of total enlightenment, Mm -hmm. total Buddhahood, then yes, they've joined with the whole ocean, and so they can tune into any part of it. They've realized that holographic uh, um, truth... And, and so uh, the universe is contained in them, and they are the universe. Mm-hmm. So that's quite possible uh, for them to know. And I, I'm wondering if some of the, uh, if a lot of the shamanic experiences are um, people being able to tune in to places and people far away, because there is a non-local reality, yeah. and it's actually, the distance is an illusion, And so David Bohm's idea of hollow movement where the whole universe is constantly enfolding and unfolding, you know, at a fantastically rapid rate. And and so it's like the Blake poem about eternity in an hour, even time is, uh, you know, the universe in a grain of sand. And something in a wildflower. Eternity in an hour. Eternity in an hour.
0: I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Oh my gosh. And so that really says it. And William Blake, the last day of his life, sang the whole day long because he knew he was going back to the ocean. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Steve Jobs, in the last moments of his life, said, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow.
2: Mm Hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) Kind of cool. Um, Yeah. Well, one thing a teacher of mine once said is that um, in the enlightened state, you can know anything, but in a human nervous system, you can't know everything simultaneously. You can sort of turn the the beam of attention onto anything in the universe that you really wanted to know, but it takes a different sort of nervous system than the human to have any sort of omniscience
1: well if you're if you believe that uh, Knowing or awareness depends on the nervous system. That would be the case.
0: It, I mean, let's discuss that for a moment. I mean, how how does one know things um, if uh, without a nervous system or irrespective of a nervous system? Isn't isn't the nervous system on some level required as an instrument of perception for knowing or experiencing anything?
1: Well, that sort of that notion gets kind of blown out of the water by you know, when people have had out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, then those don't jive with the idea that it's dependent on a nervous system. So you can be aware of things apart from the body. Normally, we don't know that because we're stuck in our bodies. Yeah. But in those glimpses that people have gotten in out-of-body experiences, and there are thousands and thousands of people who have, mm-hmm then they're able to perceive things that their nervous system couldn't possibly have perceived, including while their are brain dead. Um, sure, being they're hovering a- above the surgeons watching what's going on. And then they can report accurately what happened. But not just the surgeons, you know, other things further away and things that they begin to know because they got another glimpse. I think the mind uses the brain
2: mm-hmm.
1: for a while. And then the body dies, and then the mind, the consciousness Continues.
0: Yeah, I agree. But when I say nervous system, I'm actually including the subtle body, or the, or the subtle nervous system. And if a yogi or a Rinpoche or something can know what's happening in France right now, it, obviously his physical eyes and whatnot uh, can't see that, but there's some sort of, as we go deeper we become more universal, there's some kind of subtle mechanism, perceptual mechanism that is not constrained to the, the flesh and blood body.
1: Well, the physicists are making it clear that photons can be tied to each other in a non-local way, so I think that we can change channels to the level of consciousness where there is no distance anymore. Yeah and so that's beyond the nervous system, and i I question about the subtle body because I don't know, it depends on which one you're talking well, what about.: This is
0: what we mean by it, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, because, um, you know, the subtle body that you can, for example, photograph with Kirlian photography, that dies when the physical body dies. Yeah. But there is a a kernel of awareness that goes forward, and that, I think, is what eventually experiences enlightenment and, you know, melts into the ocean of oneness. That's what can perceive things anywhere and so on, apart from the nervous system.
0: (laughs) In a way, you and I are just sort of playing with hypotheses here. Yeah. I don't think either yeah. of us is, at least I haven't experientially verified all this stuff, but it's fun to play with.
1: <laughs> right. No, I'm going off other people's experiences and then, yeah, we're spinning out theories. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, we could talk a little bit about physics, but neither of us is are physicists, but that doesn't mean we can't right. talk about it a little bit and, you know, okay. consider the implications of it and so on. So it's, right. it's, it's okay to do this as long as you don't, you know, get too obsessive about it or hang all your hopes on it or consider it to be adequate for your spiritual development to understand these concepts or something.
1: Right, now I have 100% understanding kind of thing, you know, it's yeah. way beyond that, yeah.
0: Okay, good. Well, I'm going to jump around a little bit and reference my notes here because uh, there's a bunch <laughs> of things I I took notes on as I was reading your book and, um, and as we go, you know, anything that comes to your mind that you'd like to talk about that I'm not bringing up, please just Jump in with it, okay?
2: Okay.
0: One is, for those who are not very familiar with Buddhism, could you just review the different schools of Buddhism a little bit Mm. and explain what's different about Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana, from the other schools, just so we have our terminology straight
1: Sure. Um, you're kind of like a map, and you are here. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you
0: know, you got attracted to this particular thing, you, and mm-hmm. you said there are certain things about it that you liked, and uh, mindfulness mm-hmm. is very popular, and all the rage, and so mm-hmm. is, is this mindfulness? No, I think it's different. And you know, How is it different, and, and so on?
1: Uh, well, mindfulness certainly mm-hmm. is a part of it. So let me just uh, jump back and do a little map quick, and then I'll zero in on Vajrayana. So the yanas are, uh, that means vehicle, yana.
0: Different branches of Buddhism? Is that what those are?
1: Yeah, vehicle. Yana uh, oh. means vehicle. Okay. So, vehicles to get to enlightenment. to understand, you know, kind of the concept there. And then there's Hinayana, which is usually uh, termed Theravada. And that's uh, the first turning of the, the wheel uh, that the Buddha did. He first taught that widely. And so Theravada is, I think, what people generally are referring to when they say mindfulness, and that's Insight Meditation Society, Shamatha and Vipassana are the main practices, as well as Metta, which means loving kindness. Uh, so feeling that connection to all beings. Mm. So that's one branch of Buddhism that really landed in Burma and Thailand and you know, the, that area of the world. Then there was Mahayana, and that means great vehicle. And the reason it's called great vehicle is because now you're using not just insight meditation and uh, metta, uh, loving kindness practice. That's kind of like the foundation, and that's common to all branches of Buddhism. But uh, then in Mahayana... You also have the opportunity with those afflictive emotions that I was talking about, the trying to push away and the trying to grab for yourself and the ignorance that's, you know, at the root of all of that. So instead of just avoiding... They're called poisons by the Tibetans, the three poisons. So instead of just sort of walking around and avoiding the poisons, which is what's done in Theravada, in Mahayana, you apply an antidote. So for example... The antidote to anger is forbearance, sometimes translated as patience, but I think forbearance is a better term to get at it. So Mahayana is quite a big school, and it includes Chan Buddhism in China and Vietnamese Zen and Japanese Zen. So those are Mahayana. And that also includes... The practice of compassion as being key to full enlightenment. And then a subcategory of the great vehicle, Mahayana, is Vajrayana. And that's the one that went to Tibet. And that one, there are a few important differences. Uh, so it includes the others in the practices, and you begin with those kinds of practices. But it's kind of like building a house where you begin with calming the mind and becoming more mindful as a foundation. And loving-kindness then you're adding the walls and Vajrayana is like the roof the medicine gets stronger and more efficient this is according to Tibetans mm-hmm. <laughs> as you go when you're getting you know somebody who's been studying Tibetan Buddhism I did study the other ones actually in that same progression so it was kind of handy <laughs> but I found my way to Vajrayana and really settled there because there are, uh, instead of walking around the poison or applying an antidote, now you actually take that poisonous emotion, like anger, for example, and peel away the layers of drama and ego and get to the very essence of its quality. And it has this sharp, clear quality to it. And so it is actually one of the five timeless awarenesses that are qualities of the Dharmakaya and really very much present uh, in that template level of the Sambokakaya. And so it's called mirror-like timeless awareness because of its particular quality. And each of the five timeless awarenesses have different qualities which then will play out in manifestation in infinite ways Mm. as they weave together. Unfortunately, because we're occluded and, you know, we got a lot of ego and, you know, layers of misunderstanding, then we just feel pissed off, right? And we aren't experiencing pure mirror-like timeless awareness. But we can use that feeling as a flag. Oh, I could travel back home by just peeling the layers of the onion of that very emotion. And there are practices to help you do that. So that's why I say it's very efficient. For example, at one point I was doing one of these powerful practices that involve uh, an archetypal image and so on and so forth, and a mantra, which is archetypal sound, to help you tune into that channel. And I was able to get down to the essence of it, to find my way to mirror-like wisdom. And then I was, you know, basically in the point of view of the ocean, And I felt complete compassion for this person who had been making war on me for years, and I'd been ignoring it. And in in meditation, I just realized, oh, my gosh, they've been making war on me for years, and I was furious. Mm. And so I did this practice, like, with more intensity than I've ever done it before. You know, they say there's no such thing as an atheist in a foxhole. (laughs) And I was in a foxhole. It was terrible. You know, my whole nervous system was like on fire Mm. with this. And um, it felt awful. So I wanted to get rid of that. So I called on this principle of reality in the form of this deity, in the form of this image, used these methods to really tune into that channel. And it worked. It was amazing. It's great.
0: You know, when you think of... Christianity, for instance, you have everything from the Snake Handlers and the Westboro Baptist Church, you know, all, all, all the way up to Meister Eckhart and Mother Teresa and, you know, Teresa of Avila and a huge spectrum of different things. And you wonder, you know, how much of this would Jesus actually align with? Probably the stuff on the latter end of the spectrum that I just mentioned. And then in terms of Buddhism, you know, you have the thing, the, all the different things you just mentioned and, you know, I wonder, you know, how how closely all these different things align with what the Buddha was actually teaching and what he would think of them if he were alive today and, and reviewing what everybody's doing in his name. Um, mm. do they all do all these different branches and things claim to be representing the Buddha accurately and the others not so much? Or or do they are they just taking particular um, facets of what he offered and emphasizing those or what?
1: Well, you could say that, for example, with the three Mm yanas, that he was teaching those uh, three levels, not to everybody, because especially Vajrayana, excuse me, it was a select few, and it was kept secret for a very, very long time, because with strong medicine, you know, it's kind of like you need a prescription. Right. <laughs> you be under a doctor's care. Yeah. Right. Be under a doctor's care. This kind of thing, it, it's true. You know, like what I was mentioning with the working with the subtle energies in um, breath and and so on and so forth. That's a don't try this at home unless <laughs> you're under the yeah. You yeah. know the care of a, a llama, no, and people can I was- go crazy
0: abusing or misusing various powerful techniques, pranayama techniques, and things like that. It can you can exactly.
1: get yeah. Kundalini and so on. You get in big
0: trouble.
1: That's right. So I was very lucky that uh, Rinpache happened to be my my teacher. He happens to be an expert at that, those practices, mm-hmm. and uh, was waiting for his green card. Some stage of his green card to come through. So I was alone in retreat, and he spent a ton of time just teaching me. That's great. Yeah. So pretty amazing uh, the opportunity. But let's see. What was uh, there was an earlier part of your question. Well, it was
0: just about like how representative of the what the Buddha was actually teaching. Do we even know what the oh, Buddha yeah. was actually teaching? You know, and yeah. uh, maybe that's up, up for wild speculation also. So it's really impossible to answer the question.
1: Yeah. Well, let's start with the fact that nothing was written down for three hundred years. Yeah.
0: Same with Jesus. It's like who knows? Exactly. What, yeah, what was actually going on? Or
1: <laughs> however many years it was. Yeah. yeah. And people memorized and taught other people but again those are words yeah. and a part of the i can't remember where it is in the sutras but they talk about the buddha teaching to a crowd of people and when people compared notes afterwards they all heard something different yeah so they all got different teachings
0: mhm even though he was saying the same thing that is so true
1: well mm. I, who knows exactly what was going on there because if he was coming from this non-local whole ocean channel changing kind of thing then they may actually have gotten different teachers I, I don't know how that no, works. No, that's true, too.
0: The first time I ever met Maharishi Mahesh Yogi on a course, he, he he was giving a talk and he said, you know, I'm saying one thing and you're hearing a thousand different things because there are about that many people in the audience. He said, hopefully the day will come when you'll just be hearing one thing. Um, but, you know, a good teacher can teach on many levels simultaneously and there are always going to be in any group people at different levels. And, and uh, so could be that... There's that too. Yeah, Yeah. he might have been teaching kind of multidimensionally.
1: That's right. And, you know, you can take it different ways. And it could also be that he was just saying one thing and different students were on their own sub-channels, you know, and hearing it slightly differently. And we all know how that goes when we sit at a meeting, you know, try and decide on something. And people have different points of view and they're hearing different things and so on because of their own lenses.
0: I suppose it's sort of a not that important a point you know i mean what the proof of the pudding is in the eating and and the whatever the buddha may have been teaching you know what really counts is what what works you know and this is obviously working for you and a lot of other things that people do work for them so if you find something that works for you and you do it and you stick with it great Mm
1: -hmm. exactly yeah so that's That's what I decided, too. I road-tested the methods, and I found that I was happier. I was able to deal with challenges uh, in life, uh, both outer and inner, much better, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I I would never want to go back kind of thing. So, um, you know, I just continued on, and the, the more I did, and the more retreat I did, which is, you know, total immersion... Uh, and that's the way to change the pathways in your brain. Like mm-hmm. if you're going to learn Spanish or whatever. Go to Spain. So someplace. yeah, and just don't speak any English and yeah. only speak Spanish. And that's how you actually become fluent. So if you want to become fluent in these more enlightened states that you get a glimpse of in daily practice, mm-hmm. you go into retreat and then it's more uh, transformative uh, so that you leave some of that dross behind. You know, yeah. it's really going into an alchemical process, and the word for retreat in Tibetan is "tsam," which means boundary. So you go into the crucible, you turn up the heat with the practices, and you you know you put the elements in with the practices and so on, and then you cook.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and it's uh, you know other than meal breaks and sleeping, it's pretty much all you're doing all day and into the evening,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, you come out quite different.
0: You do, yeah.
1: Done. And you still have to do a daily practice or you're going to lose it. I'm glad
0: you're emphasizing that. Here, here's a quote from your Lama. He said, I'm not giving you a religion. I'm giving you a set of tools with which you can reach enlightenment.
1: I was really relieved when he said that, by the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, what's a religion going to do for you? I mean, it does something for some people because it gives them faith and hope and solace and, and whatnot. But if you're actually talking about enlightenment, then you know, a set of beliefs isn't going to do it for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I see a religion as being uh, sort of something to help the culture. Yeah, maybe give you some moral
0: guidance and some...
1: Yeah, you know, it's very much of a cultural element to it, that, you know, people gather at the church and there's community and Hmm. this is, you know, hopefully a, a better way to do community than going to a bar, you know. And the Buddha uh, talked about the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So if you're trying to get somewhere, first of all, you want a guide who's already been there and knows the way. So that's Buddha, right? Because mm-hmm. they've already gotten there. Dharma is the map. And that's a good the thing whole, to have. The whole
0: body of teaching?
1: Uh, or yeah. Practices or, and you know, knowledge and stuff? That, yeah. yeah. And then the Sangha, is your fellow travelers and you help each other stay on track. So we are herd animals, let's face it. we're Our brains are built for it, you know, and we're very tribal. So the Buddha took these natural tendencies that we have and gave us a way to point ourselves, use them to actually galvanize us and propel us on the path to enlightenment. So. I feel very strongly about that Sangha piece that is missing a bit, I feel, in um, American uh, Buddhist uh, circles, because maybe I'm thinking, my hypothesis is that we're into rugged individualism, so we just think, well, I'll practice mindfulness for myself, and it's a daily practice for myself, and this kind of thing, and they don't often get together in groups, mm. but The experience of meditating in a group is quite powerful and very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Because we all infect each other with whatever we're thinking and Mm -hmm. feeling. Um, So, you know, if if you've been to a rock concert, you know this. Yeah. (laughs) So why not use that natural human tendency, you know, to help us go where we're trying to go by hanging out with people and really chewing on these things with people who are trying to go in the same direction, have the same intent.
0: Yeah. I think it's a very important point. I'm glad you were emphasizing it. The biggest group I ever meditated in was about 8,000 people, and it was palpable. Boy, it was thick oh, as a brick. <laughs>
1: yeah. I bet. Yeah. Well, you know, it reminds me of the difference between ambient light and laser light. Yeah. So, ambient light, the waves are going up and down whenever they do, mm-hmm. and laser light, they're coherent, coherent. light, it's called. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so they're going up and down at the same time, and they can burn through wood. You know, they yeah. can, you know, blast a tree apart if it's a big enough laser. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly the point. This is a nice big laser. So why not take advantage of that? And in my experience, because I've been uh, with groups and starting groups and so on for years, um, we develop deep um, connection with each other. And that's the basis, once you feel that, to then step it out and out and out to include Everyone, all and everyone, all beings, and that's exactly what the practices of, of such as metta or Donglin lin in, in my tradition do. They start with yourself, and because we Westerners are crummy at compassion and love for ourselves, so I emphasize that a lot, as do a lot of other Western teachers. And then you know my tribe, you know the people I easily feel love or compassion for, and then out. Stepping out until you really feel that everyone is my tribe, you know. And, and the my becomes kind of meaningless. Dwell but you're holding the, everyone in your heart then.
0: Sure. Just mm-hmm. to dwell on the Sangha thing for another moment. I mean, we don't want to be like prissy where I can't go to Walmart because I'll be polluted by the consciousness of the people there or something like that. Obviously, one has to live one's practical life. But oh, yeah. there's also a thing like, you know, if you... I mean, if you go into a coal mine with a white suit on, you're, you're, no, you're not going to clean up the coal, but you're definitely going to get your suit dirty. So it, it really does matter the company you keep uh, as much as you have any kind of choice in the matter.
1: Well, here's the other thing. It is fun sitting together with people, people who are kind of trying to do the same thing, pursue mindfulness, whatever yeah. you have, and comparing notes. Well, how is this working in my life? Mm-hmm. And how is the interaction going between my life and what I'm experiencing on the cushion? And am I really able to connect the wires? What do you think? And then somebody helps with that. And then we, you know, I help them and, you know, we learn about each other like in a deep way Hmm. and are talking about stuff that matters. It's very satisfying. And then uh, there's usually a study portion. We have learning circles is what we call them. And uh, so in the evening, there's a study portion, a meditation portion, Uh, breaking bread together portion, Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, chewing on things together portion. And it's just a very satisfying evening.
0: Yeah. And are you talking about what happens up there at your retreat place in Montana, or what are you talking about? No.
1: Namchok is, at this point, still in the planning stages and hasn't built the retreat facilities. Okay. We're going to have two. One for, like, student workers that will be done sooner. And then for people who just want to go whole hog with this total immersion and do the traditional three-year retreat, mm. we're going to also build a facility for that. But right now what we're doing is uh, starting learning circles all over the place. And they can do our e-course and read the book, you know, for those inputs to then chew on together. Mm. Um, and we support the starting of learning circles with a little toolkit. So they can go to nomchalk.org and download that stuff, the e-course or the mm-hmm. – the toolkit, that kind of thing. And we also travel. So I'm about to go teach the Pasana Tibetan style, and that's the name of the the little weekend retreat, with Rinpoche's brother, who is a high-level scholar and a fantastic uh, lama in his own right. I've taken many teachings from him. So we're going to teach together, first in Berkeley and then uh, in New York. Okay. And that's coming up next month.
0: Great. There's a thing on batgap.com where you can under resources where if you put in a location, you will see any kind of activities being offered by people I've interviewed in the past and it kind of radiates out geographically. So if you put in the zip code for Midtown Manhattan, then you'd see, you know, things in Manhattan, things in New Jersey, things in Pennsylvania, it sort of radiates out. So I'll, I'll let you know about that after the interview Irene will and you can put your things.
1: Yeah, in we're the- Exactly, and we're trying to work on that so that people can find each other in different locations and have learning circles together. You know, just I'm talking like you know four to eight people, something like that. Very yeah. small, intimate, uh, where you can fit in somebody's living room, kind of. Thing.
0: Yeah, actually, that's one thing I like about your um, your book is it's you know you read it and there's all these practices in there and there's little cards in the back. Let me get out the little cards that you could. Here's some cards. And put it on here, that you could use to sort of like, you know, remind yourself how to do the practices and keep, keep them by your, your meditation seat or whatever until you've, you've got it down. And um, and then you also have all kinds of things on your website that people can download for free and listen to and, and so on. So you can learn quite a bit. I'm sure there's a need for having a, a one-to-one experience with a, a teacher such as yourself, um, but you
1: can well, learn. Well, we actually do have monthly meditation coaching calls where I do It'll be a small group of people, but I like do one on yeah. But I do one-on-ones with each person, and everybody okay. listens to each other. And they're like, "Oh, I'm glad I heard that one," you yeah. know, because of course it's all you know. We we appreciate all of them. Yeah,
0: yeah. great. So people can sign up for that on your website. I'm sure namchuck.org. Yeah. Okay.
1: And then there are also these uh, retreats that where we come to those two locations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Nice. That
0: almost sounded like we we're wrapping up the interview, but we're not.
1: <laughs> we just got into how we were trying to, you know, because I want people to have some follow-through. I didn't want to put the book out in the world and then people, you know, read the book. It That was nice, and then they go back to their lives. You know, there's got to be some follow-through.
0: Yeah. While I'm thinking of it, I did mention in the beginning that this is first part of a three-part series of books. What um, Maybe in a, a sentence or two, what's in each book? This one, the next two?
1: Well, I mentioned the Mundreau, uh in the beginning, when we were talking right in the beginning, uh, that I was doing those this series of practices. And by the end of the trilogy, I hope to have taught the or at least introduced that whole series of practices. People One will
0: be able to learn them from the books?
1: Kind of? Yeah, it's a good introduction, but you really are best off going to... Um, you know, teachings, because that is stronger medicine. And you really want to, I mean, Mm -hmm. any kind of meditation is better learned from somebody who really knows what they're doing. Right. And um, so, you know, we can teach... As you and I both
0: experienced before we got on to what we ended up doing.
1: Exactly. And there's plenty of (laughs) blind leading the blind. Oh, right. And also, you know, thinking that we can get it from a book, turns out to be a bad idea. Uh, I I did try that and, you know, had some kind of scary results so it is good to have the real live instruction from you know somebody who's been through it before and everything and then you know i'm taking this tool and i'm using it on my mind i want to use it correctly and get the most benefit out of it too i'll cover all of those in the three books and the one that i've already uh, written the rough draft for the second one covers more of the First Stages of the Mundra, because I didn't, I wanted to start with just, imagine if somebody is curious about meditation, has no idea, you know, could they pick up this book and start there? So Mm -hmm. that's what I wanted to do in Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling, that first book.
0: I just want to mention to those in the live stream audience, a couple hundred people watching If you have a question, you can go to the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com, and then the bottom of that page there's a form. You can submit a question through that form, and uh, it'll be reviewed by somebody and then sent to me. So feel free to do that if you have a question. Um, one thing that about me is that I've I've never felt that I was a very good visualizer. You know, I have a certain type of meditation <laughs> I do which really works for me, and um, I've I've really enjoyed it, but when I start reading about all these techniques that involve various kinds of visualization and all, they seem kind of complicated to me and I have a feeling I wouldn't be very good at them. So Uh eh, maybe you could address that for those who might feel as I do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, the effort to visualize something already opens up different parts of the brain and begins to have them in coordination, in concert with each other Uh um, so that you're not just You know, thinking in words which are only using, you know, parts of frontal lobes. Right. Now you're opening up and activating and and involving more parts of the brain just in the very effort of visualizing. Mm -hmm. That then uh, involves more of you in the practice and you're going to, it's more deeply transformative. And Jung, of course, talked about the power of imagery. Mm -hmm. So the very effort of trying to visualize. Myself being this Dakini Sangwa Yeshe, for example. <laughs> and by the way, guys are also visualizing themselves to be Green Tara or Guru Rinpoche. You know, it doesn't matter what sex you are, you can mm-hmm. visualize yourself and should both from time to time. So, what anyway, that for so,
2: you?
1: well, it brings out all your feminine side or your masculine side, but all these different facets of it because there are all these different beings who you can be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and
0: are these real beings that you think exist on some level, or just sort of archetypical, you know, um, traditional, mythological kinds of images?
1: Well, the principle of the mother, the great mother, mm-hmm. is a principle, so that's real. And then we use images to try and tune into that channel. Mm. That's how I see it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the image may not be very clear. Uh, That's okay. Right now, if you stop and think of your bedroom, for Mm -hmm. example, can you visualize that a little bit? Sure. So you know where, for example, the lighting sources are? Yep. And where the bed is in relation Mm -hmm. to the window? Yep. Okay. So I just visualized something. (laughs) You did, because you're familiar with it. Yeah. You can visualize making coffee in the morning and how you do that, and a Tibetan would be completely flummoxed by that right uh-huh. fresh from tibet yeah. totally flummoxed and you 'd have to explain they'd, they'd about
0: make rancid yak butter tea or something
1: <laughs> well they they wouldn 't know what the you know the mr coffee you know they yeah. don 't know what that is, yeah. and you have to then describe what that is and then You know, there's electricity involved, and maybe they've never had electricity. And so, when you say, "Well, then you turn it on," they're like, "What? What's that?" (laughs) So you have to go into this elaborate description and everything, and they think, "Oh my gosh, this is way too complicated. I can't do this." But it's for us, it's easy because we're familiar with it. So you spend a lot of time with these, so you get familiar, and that's another reason why just even a weekend retreat really settles you in the practice because you're immersed in it.
0: Yeah. That's another important point. I mean, we've talked about the value of practice and the value of the Sangha. Um, Also, doing a retreat from time to time can be extremely powerful compared to just sort of trying to meditate or do some practice on your own every day.
1: It's, uh, you know, both and. So just as with Sangha, you want both your individual meditation because there's, you know, a particular benefit to that. Uh, You can kind of do what you want with it and so Mm. on and so forth. And then there's a particular benefit of meditating in a group. Likewise, there's the benefit of total immersion of retreat, and there's the benefit of carrying through with uh, those new habits so that they become really well-established. And uh, as you go, then some of the old ones, um, again, uh, sort of fall away, and the new pathways get stronger and stronger, and those are the ones you go on. So that... um, Masters like my teachers, um, they, you know, particularly Tukusang he really um, can practice. I, I've seen him in action uh, practicing it on the spot in everyday life. It, we're supposed to let a thought arise and then let it go, and just we're still there as the thoughts come and go. Well, I've seen him do that with stuff right in action in the day, hmm. you know because it's so he's so habituated and he's done hours of meditation every day for you know most of his life. yeah
0: well, I think we were trying to define enlightenment earlier, and I think that that's a good criteria of it is it's not something that comes and goes, it's something that is stable, regardless of what you're doing and uh yeah. you know and and that necessitates. Some, usually for most people, it necessitates some kind of long-term culturing of the mind and, and nervous system. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, we're, you know, people are familiar with the term neuroplasticity. That doesn't happen instantly. It happens over days, weeks, months, years. You can, you can sculpt the brain, so to speak.
1: Right. So doing this combination of, you know, total immersion, transformation, and follow-through. Mm -hmm. Total transformation, you know, uh, another step in transformation, and follow through. You know, and then you kind of create this upward spiral if you, you know, do the occasional retreat and then follow through with daily practice. Yeah,
0: Um, there's some people who I won't dwell on this too much, but there's some people who sort of poo-poo the idea of practice altogether, and they say, "Oh, you know, you're already enlightened, and and doing a practice implies that." you aren't already enlightened, you're reaching for your, you give up the search, you're searching for something that you already have, if, if you just see it, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Well,
1: those. that's the big alberative word, is if, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, can just if you see can. it. Right. Well, that's the problem, and we're talking about cleaning the windshield, and then we won't be in the mud pit that I was mentioning. You know, we clean all that off, and then it's a pure land, is the yeah. term that, uh, you know, a heavenly realm, or whatever we want to call it.
0: Sure, and as Ramana said, it takes a thorn to remove a thorn. Um, and speaking of mud pits, if you're standing in the middle of a mud pit and someone says, come out of the mud pit, uh, you say, how? And you say, well, take a step. Wait a minute, you're asking me to take a step in mud again. Uh, but yeah, uh-huh. but you're moving in the direction of being out of the mud puddle.
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 right.
2: Yeah.
1: And one thing that uh, often happens along the way is as people are doing these meditation practices, they'll um, have these meditative experiences I get really excited about them.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, And Rinpoche really has strongly cautioned me, um, don't get excited about those. They're called nyam in Tibetan. So they're well known. Good experiences? uh, Well, I mean, there can be bad ones too, but he was referring to the the nice ones. Yeah. And there are three categories of those. They have all these categories for everything. So (laughs) the three categories here are um, bliss, clarity, non-thought, freedom from thought. And we can experience all three in uh, a meditative experience or mainly one or one or another can be emphasized, that kind of thing. And we get really excited about it and all proud of ourselves and everything. And that just, you know, took uh, a nice little signpost and kind of sullied it, kind of ruined it. So it is just a signpost and we're supposed to keep going. Yeah, it
0: place. also spoils the sort of innocence and spontaneity of the practice because you're sitting there trying for an experience, and that, that way right. you're actually not actually doing the practice you're supposed to be doing that brought about you're the original experience.
1: You're practicing clinging and pride.
0: Yeah, exactly. you know, which are
1: the opposite direction. That's ego stuff.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: so it's it, to me, it's kind of like uh, driving down the road. You're on your way to, let's say, um, L.A. from Santa Barbara. I don't know. And as you're driving south, um, you see a sign, and it says so many miles to L.A. And you uh, pull off the road and sit down in front of the sign and stare at the sign. (laughs) Isn't that a wonderful sign?
2: Beautiful. You
1: know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Get in the car and keep going. I mean, great. You saw the sign. Now just keep going. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. Also, I think one thing that's worth noting is that some people are wired such that they they naturally have flashy experiences. It's kind of the way they operate, and other yeah. other people don't. And you can't, you shouldn't compare yourself to others. You know, you just get you can get all hung up in envy and then trying to be somebody or not. Um, so, I don't. Know.
1: Yeah. Well, and that's just more ego stuff. You yeah. know, keeping a scorecard on whatever outward um, experiences that people are having that really. Isn't the point. You know, you're still, you know, slogging, stepping through the mud to get out.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. A question came in from Dan in London. He's asking Is there anything in Buddhism like bhakti yoga that is a practice of loving devotion where devotion to God, I know that you don't use the term God, but devotion to God might be in more personal terms to people mm-hmm. and things in the relative world? Absolutely. I think Sometimes you said you practice guru yoga, right?
1: We do practice guru yoga. And it's actually fundamental to Vajrayana because of, there are several reasons, because of uh, the intensity of the practices and the level at which they work, um, it's important uh, to join your mind as much as possible with the Lama, Mm.
2: um,
1: and that is Guru Yoga. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're also, you know, we are actually, of course, made of Buddha, if you will, made of enlightened mind, Mm -hmm. and we just don't know it. And so we have this tendency to pro- project anyway, and so we're projecting onto these deities, and uh, we see them as enlightened mind taking that form. We understand that we literally project it from our heart-mind out there, and then take it back in at the end of the practice. Mm-hmm. And we practice guru yoga the same way. Uh, we're asked to visualize the Lama as an enlightened being, so not... You know, my, and my teacher said, don't have a picture of me. I've got this stain on my tooth. I've got pimples. <laughs> you know, my hair is going gray, this kind of thing. You know, have a picture of Guru Rinpoche or something like that mm. and imagine him. But you imagine the presence of the person you met, mm. you know, who you actually have had a chance to meet on this level that I'm stuck on, right? Mm-hmm. That helps me. So it's uh, used in that way. And you project out and then take it back in many times. Even in one practice, you can do it multiple times. But certainly every practice session, you're doing that. So in a sense, uh, there's you know some aspect of guru yoga in all the practices we do. And so... Um,
0: so when you do that, do you feel a lot of love and devotion? Is that
1: absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Because you're joining your mind. So it cultures the heart as well as the, the mind. Absolutely. Say. And uh, you also piggyback on the Lama's... Um, level of realization I, I bumped into that by accident actually
0: <laughs> mm. oh yeah tell that story that's good
1: yeah so i was practicing guru yoga at the end of my little mundro practice you know where you got that series and i was um you know sinking into that and doing the mantra and visualizing not uh Tukhu sangak rinpoche with a stain on his tooth etc but uh guru rinpoche who is the master who brought buddhism to tibet and was uh seen by tibetans the second as the second as the Second Buddha, the reincarnation of the Buddha. So I'm busy doing that. And then uh, right afterwards, I'm uh, sitting doing uh, just, you know, p- pure uh, Shamatha Vipassana meditation. And I'm like, so Rinpoche, lately, when I'm sitting doing Shamatha Vipassana, it's like on a whole different level. And it's, I mean, it's like, it's not even me totally. I mean, I'm there, but it's like something more. It's like way beyond what I can normally experience. And he said, well, you do that right after the, the shamatha Vipassana, right after Guru Yoga, right? And I said, well, sure, yeah. And he said, so you, uh, you know, joined your mind with mine. And that's why it felt that way. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, going up the you know mountain of enlightenment, if you will, I'm sort of riding on his shoulders
2: <laughs> yeah
0: it's um
1: it really you know, felt like that that it clicked I was like, oh that is what it was yeah, it wasn't just me
0: so in various traditions, there's definitely a thing of attuning your mind to the mind of the master and mm-hmm. or the teacher or the guru, and actually sort of mind melding or creating this sort of resonance such that you actually attain that enlightened state by by proximity and by attunement. It can be a very powerful and fast way of evolving if you have that opportunity.
1: Exactly. And so um, early English speakers referred to Tibetan Buddhism as Lamaism mm-hmm. because it's such a strong part of the path. Yeah. And even the deities that we're envisioning it's like the the Lama is the doorway to that because he's somebody we've met who is you know so connected to that other level, um, so we can piggyback in that way by imagining that the deities are the Lama, his enlightened mind mm-hmm. in um, in drag.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. Here's a question that came in from Kay in Shoreview, Shoreview, Minnesota. He or she asks, I always wondered what the point of all this birth and evolution is. Why are people born in ignorance and then have to take the time to in, to gain enlightenment? Is this for entertainment? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who is entertainment? <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, so I, I, I gather from my studies, and it kind of makes sense, that... Um, we're taking a very scenic route to enlightenment. The Dalai Lama says, sooner or later, we will all reach enlightenment. Better it be sooner. Ha, 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 ha. Then he does his little <laughs> laugh. Yeah, right. um, so, you know, I think he summed it up right there. Um, we uh, are, you know, seemingly going around in circles, you know, endlessly, mm-hmm. you know, since beginning was time and taking yet another body and being in another situation, so on and so on, and around we go. Um. And there isn't a whole lot of meaning to all that circuitousness. So if we can find a more direct path, we'd best pursue it. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: And, and you know, we may be a worm next time, or whatever. Um, so that that would be much more difficult. Yeah. Um, so in the in the A.K. universe, all
0: the sun shines.
1: Well, and I think. Um, you know, if you think of the demographics of beings that we can't see because we're not tuned into those levels of reality, there must be infinite numbers of beings. Mm-hmm. So to be in the right uh, incarnation, you know, with the right circumstances to get the teachings and so on and so forth, that's a very small demographic. Yeah. So we might want to take advantage of that.
0: Yep. Otherwise and I talk you've... about
1: that in my second book, actually. Oh, I Oh, really good. Don't that. Yeah, it's yeah. an
0: important thing to do.
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh, As one teacher put it, um, you know, if you don't take advantage of this opportunity, you've sold a diamond for the price of spinach.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which you eat and then poop out. Yeah,
0: right. One thing to Kay's question, I would say, is, um, you know, he's asking what the point of all this birth and evolution is, what's the point of the universe? And, uh, you know, I think, why does hydrogen gas become stars and planets and giraffes and all these life forms that seem to be getting more and more complex and and growing bigger and bigger brains? And, and, you know, I could give an answer to that. You could probably give an answer to that. But that's an interesting question to ask.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, it's a big question. And um, I'm still trying to understand really what it is. I, I don't know the full answer to that. And I wonder whether our little minds can encompass the true, you know, full intention of that awareness that's, um, you know, the whole ocean awareness,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Cause that's really what we're talking about. What is the intent, the enlightened intent of that ocean, you know, the bottom of the ocean kind of thing. You know, it's hard to say. One thing that I understand from Buddhist thought is that, um, that, uh, you know unfolding of the universe into many more and more complex manifestations and then going back into emptiness there's a certain biorhythm with that that happens again and again yeah there's also biorhythms of consciousness where we're more murky and less murky and right now we're in a very murky time
0: Leading right into what I wanted to talk to you about, uh, another one of the points here. Yeah, there's cycles and uh, throughout history and cycles in, in societies and so on and so forth. And, and one thing you write, I believe it was in your book, uh, one of humanity's great shifts is going to happen when the shit hits the fan. Um, your major task is to make the transition as graceful as possible. This will require inner as well as outer ways of working with life. So a lot of people say this, they feel like you know, something is happening, and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? Um, there's, old oh, Dylan's on. There, there's definitely something going on in the world. We're on the brink of some, tr- some dramatic, perhaps cataclysmic change, and uh, and you know, all the sort of upsurge of technological ad- advances, um, juxtaposed with the upsurge of interest in spiritual development, which isn't carried so much by the, the 6 o'clock news, but is nonetheless real, it signifies something major is happening. What would you like to comment about that kind of thing?
1: Uh, well, it seems it's been predicted by many uh, different uh, spiritual traditions, and yeah. that's true in uh, the Tibetan Buddhist one. Um, so Guru Rinpoche, I mentioned earlier, brought... Uh, Buddhist, you know, really landed Buddhism in, in Tibet. Mm-hmm. And he made a lot of predictions and very specific ones about these times. Mm. Uh, he referred to them as Dungan, which means negative times. So that's, you know, not very hopeful right there. And he gave specific signs like he named particular mountains and they would look like uh, tiger stripes. And you know how mountains had these ridges and valleys on their sides, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, normally those mountains are high Himalayas, so the snow never melts uh, near the top. But now it's melting on one side, on the Mm -hmm. south side. And so they're striped. Mm -hmm. And he predicted uh, SARS, you know, the shape of the germ, Mm. which, you know, correlated with what they saw in the microscopes. Mm So a lot of really specific uh, predictions. I, you know, I could enumerate a ton of other uh, predictions, but the point is he was seeing that this was becoming a murkier time and more ego-infused time and muddier. <laughs> the right. mud pit is thicker or whatever. Uh, and he said Vajrayana would be actually on the upswing. Uh, because it has such strong practices that sort of take you by the nape of the neck and mm-hmm. plop you in of um, a, a clearer state. And we need something like that in these times.
0: Yeah, there's some something about the Chinese symbol for crisis contains a, some symbol for opportunity or something like that. And, and a number of traditions have said that, well, you know, when things get really rough, that's when people really uh, get fervent about their spiritual development. Um, and so even though it might be seen as a dark time, it's also a, a time of great opportunity.
1: Yes, and we can see that there's a new paradigm trying to be born. We've had new paradigms uh, come and supplant old ones. Uh, mm-hmm. For example, um, the Renaissance just after, you know, the earlier time and then, you know, other paradigm shifts that work their way through society. William Irwin Thompson is a historian who wrote the book, The Time It Takes Falling Bodies to Light, you know, Mm. so that moment when it, it, you know, tips over into the new paradigm. And, you know, he looked at, well, how did that happen when it went into the Renaissance, exactly? Mm. Uh, Fascinating to look at. Um, It starts with The mystics, because they're used to seeing the unseen, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and so it's still very unseen and amorphous. And then the artists are used to working with the muse, and so they can work with something a little bit unseen, and they can communicate it through the arts. The next uh, people then are the businessmen, who now, you know, that it's being communicated, they can kind of get infected with this new paradigm. And if they can figure, you know, find out about a new way of doing business... Sure, they're going to do it, you know, why not? And um, the last people to catch on are the political leaders who then run to the front of the pack, right? <laughs> First, they're fighting it because they were in power in the old par- in old paradigm, and then right. they run to the front of the pack and say, no, 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 I'm, I'm leading you here. So um, I just had to digress into that. That's a good digression, to- yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan of William Irwin Thompson. But uh, anyway, um, another prediction that Guru Pache said was that all of the elements would rise up against us. And we're seeing that now. You mean
0: like climate? That kind of element?
1: Yeah. All yeah. of the elements. So we're having bigger, stronger, more devastating wildfires. Mm-hmm. You know, there's mudslides and earthquakes and floods and hurricanes, you know, so... All of the elements are rising up against yeah. us. And he said it would be because of our own actions. I don't want to, you know, lead people into thinking, oh, the new paradigm is coming and it'll be a little uncomfortable and we'll be okay and it'll be nice and this kind of thing. That's not what I'm getting from his predictions. Right. It is going to be, there is going to be some cataclysm and, uh, you know, terrible tragedy, lots of loss of life.
0: Yeah, I, I'm afraid you're right. Um, um, yeah. Even the war in Syria can be attributed to climate change, and that's just like the tip of the iceberg in terms of what could happen if sea level rises 20 feet or something. Or yeah. disease. Yeah, you know, disease, right. Plague.
1: Yeah, we've, we've had near misses, and yeah. I don't know if we'll always miss. Yeah. What were you going to say?
0: Oh, I was just going to say, I was on a boat ride one time in Switzerland with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, and he used to refer to this as the phase transition, the change that was coming mm. in society. And and somebody said, you know, Maharshi, how can we survive the phase transition? And he said, hold on to yourself. And he, yeah. meant, he meant capital S self,
2: you know.
1: Yes, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's it. And so I'm, you know, practicing as much as I can and trying to share these um very efficient effective practices with as many people as possible and as deeply as possible for whoever's interested in going deeper because i feel that's that's the best thing i can do at this time everybody's got their part to play and that's that's mine you know that feels like mine to do in this life yeah it's a good one um,
0: a question came in from Christoph Schmidt in Luxembourg, he asks, um, are there physical ailments, medical conditions that can block subtle energy channels and by doing so prevent, for example, successful visualization practice or deeper states of consciousness?
2: Hmm. Hmm.
1: Uh, I want to s- actually go a little bit backwards with that question and start with The presumption about visualization, because there was one thing I wanted to say when when you were talking before about um, not needing to visualize so clearly. You know, the effort of visualization is the important thing. And they talk about deity pride. And what they mean by that is to feel oneself indistinguishable from Yerme is the term in Tibetan, indistinguishable from the deity. Mm. So... It's not as though I'm subsumed into the deity, and the deity isn't subsumed in me, right? So there's this both-and kind of indistinguishable experience. That's the important thing. If you can just visualize the seed syllable, which is usually just a letter, if you can do that and imagine light rays going out and in and just feeling, I am this presence, that's it. That's the essence of it. You
0: can it. do that even if you have some physical infir- infirmity or something like that, obviously.
1: Yeah, and that's your way home. You yeah. know that that what well, you the quote you were giving, keep coming back to yourself in that way cuz your self capital S is like that. Yeah. You know, it's it, I just find a great channel changer for tuning into that and we want to keep doing that as much as possible. Yeah. You're supposed to imagine yourself to be the deity as you walk through your day, you know. Mm. In other words, coming from the S, capital S self.
0: One thing you mentioned in your book, and somehow that fellow's question reminded me of it, is you're not a big advocate of using drugs of any kind. These days there's a lot of popularity of ayahuasca and other drugs. And mm-hmm. um, I, th- you, I think you had a cautionary tone with regard to those things.
1: Yeah. Um, first of all, with something yeah. like ayahuasca, some people fool around with that without doing it within the context in which it's meant to to be used. And there's lineage and practices and and the equivalent of llamas who help you in that journey, and you wouldn't want to be without a good qualified uh, uh, guide on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's one thing. And then I also mentioned earlier that it's kind of like climbing a tree and seeing a glimpse of what's ahead, but then you have to go back down and you still have to walk. And that was what Ram Dass found. You know, he did a whole bunch of LSD, and he kept going to this uh, whole ocean experience kind of thing. And um, then he would come back down, and he couldn't carry it through because he hadn't done any practices. And he got tired of having to constantly drop acid. So that's why he went to India and just fully devoted himself to doing the practices, so that he could just you know do the transformation, follow through, transformation, follow through that I was talking about. So he could actually come from that kind of place all the time.
0: Yeah. One thing that, you know, I mean, I did a fair amount of that myself back in the 60s. and But these days, you know, if I, you know, people say, oh, you should try ayahuasca. I have this feeling like I don't want to play Russian roulette with my brain. I, you know, I don't know exactly what effect that would have. And, uh, you know, so there's kind of a safety first element, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the, the thing that I feel is dependable with the, uh, these practices that you know I've been studying is, is first of all you don't depend on any Externally, chemicals, yeah, right? Yeah, um, and so then you have the channel changer.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You don't have to like go to an ayahuasca ceremony with the you know right person to, you know, usher you through the experience and so on and so forth. Yeah, you you can just uh, ch- you you've got more of a channel changer yourself. Yeah, uh, and, like they, and they say and that your safer. brain
0: actually produces DMT and all these chemicals, uh, you know, mm. on its own. So there's ways of, you know, having that happen naturally.
1: I don't know about that. I haven't studied They that. say that,
0: yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Yeah, a lot I don't
1: know. I, I've certainly had uh, enlightened experiences, lots of them. Um, but I don't know if I'm producing those chemicals while I'm having those experiences.
0: Mm, undoubtedly, there's some kind of chemical thing going on in your in your brain. If you're having any experience, there's a physiological correlate. Well,
1: there's a f- yeah, but which one? The brain does oh, lots of different things. that would have to be
0: studied. You know, that, 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 there could be a lot of research done on that kind of thing.
1: Well, so one thing they've done is study gamma waves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the orchestration of many different parts of the brain that have to happen just right to produce a moment of gamma waves very unusual. And those are aha moments. Mm-hmm. So they measured the gamma waves of masters, you know, really experienced uh, Rinpoche's, you know, mm-hmm. masters and so on. And a, a French fellow. So it wasn't just Tibetans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he had studied the practices, the Tibetan practices, but he, uh, Mathieu Ricard, is French. So anyway, um, they measured and it, they, they had all the, you know, funny hats on with all the wires coming EJs, out. Yeah. And they looked at the, the needles and everything right. and they found that the masters, before they were even supposed to be meditating, just in their normal state, were already off the charts with the gamma waves they were producing mm-hmm. normally. Mm-hmm. Then when they meditated um, and they were doing a form of Dzogchen, um, it was way off the charts, They'd never before seen, uh, really remarkable. Yeah. And uh, they kept checking the equipment to see if there was something wrong with the equipment. They couldn't yeah. believe it. Uh, But it was true. And then this uh, other fellow wanted to debunk it, and he brought the same masters over there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he put the funny hats on and so on. And then he came running in again and again and said, "Uh, I think there's something wrong with the machinery. same results, right? Yeah, same results.
0: well, Well, the interesting point it brings out is that, you know, when we're talking about enlightenment or higher states of consciousness and all, Just as we know that as we go from waking to dreaming to sleeping, for instance, not only does our subjective experience change, but our physiology changes. Well, if if enlightenment is as radically different from ordinary waking consciousness as it's reputed to be, there should be a radically different brainwave signature and other physiological measures correlating with it. And the story you just told and lots of research that's being done indicates that there is
1: yeah absolutely yeah. yeah it wasn't just that study so it's that not just them. some
0: little mood or some attitude or some belief or anything else it's a It's a radical rewiring of the way our brain functions,
1: yeah, so we have the potential to just react uh on instinct you know from incoming uh senses to knee jerk reaction, mm-hmm. and we also have uh how shall I say the apparatus in our brains to react in a much more compassionate and resourced enlightened way so yeah it is a lot about you know just changing habits walking through the forest you know to actually get some progress
0: here's a question that came in from prakash bastola in san diego what is attention i feel there's a field of awareness which is me but my focus or attention moves from one object in the field of awareness to another is enlightenment being able to attend to everything in the field of awareness all at once? Can you talk about attention in relation to awareness?
1: Mm. Hmm. Well, I'm going to borrow imagery from Carl Jung and say that conscious attention is like um, a lighthouse beam, mm-hmm. you know, on one little part of the ocean. And so he says the conscious mind is like that and can only focus its attention on one thing at a time. And uh, modern uh, brain studies on multitasking have shown that actually we are shuttling back and forth between the two things. We can only in one nanosecond focus on this or that. Mm -hmm. And so we're just shuttling. Uh, So that's attention uh, and that's associated with the conscious mind. Then there's the unconscious or superconscious or whatever, you know, there's the ocean. So there's that ocean metaphor again because it's the biggest thing we know, I guess. <laughs> so you've got the lighthouse in the ocean. And awareness is a quality of that ocean. And so awareness is much bigger and wider and different qualitatively than the experience of attention on one thing. And I imagine that an enlightened Buddha has full awareness and is coming from that all the time and then can choose to focus on one thing or another. I want to just mention that very few people who have reached enlightenment remain in their body. So that was the unusual thing about You mean the moment Buddha. they get
0: enlightened, they drop the body or what?
1: they drop the body, they reach rainbow body, they reach, quite often they reach enlightenment at the moment of death, because that yeah. is, you know, something that can foster that last bit so that they go over that line that I was talking about of no return. Mm-hmm. So that you can't be a jerk sometimes and enlightened other times. Yeah, <laughs> You can't fall back.
0: Well, yeah, I don't know, but I mean, maybe that's so in the Tibetan tradition, but um, I mean, you have people like Ramana or Papaji or Nisargadatta or Neem Karoli Baba and all these guys—you know, many different saints and, and sages who apparently attained enlightenment and they stuck around for for quite a while afterwards. I mean, sometimes you had to sort of keep an eye on them or they'd wander off into the forest. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, they many of them lived for decades in an enlightened state.
1: Yeah, I I can't speak about them. I, I have no idea. You know, I can only say something about the Dalai Lama, who is uh, very highly realized fellow, uh-huh. and uh, as I said, he says he hasn't crossed that line.
0: In other words, he, he would not call himself enlightened, is that what you're saying? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's what he said. So, But I have no idea about other people, you know, what state they're in. Yeah, who knows? How, mean, know? how, can, yeah. how can we judge? Um, yeah, I'm only going, you know, when the Dalai Lama self-reports, I feel like, okay, well, that he's the expert on that.
0: So. Yeah, and it all comes back to how we define enlightenment, too. Um, that's it. Yeah. I like to think of it as, in my definition, as a potentially functional state uh, in which the the totality can become a living reality through the instrumentality of a human body, a human nervous system, and that it can be integrated. You were talking earlier about channel changing and being able to sort of tune into all the channels simultaneously. That would be my understanding of it. And so you know, you could be driving a car or even raising a family and, and doing all kinds of complicated things in the world and yet tuned into all those other channels simultaneously, p- perpetually aware of the Dharmakaya level and, and the other levels, just sort of the whole package.
1: It seems to me that that would be possible. I yeah. mean, the Buddha was able to function and talk to people. And, yeah, <laughs> you like, know, yeah, sure.
0: Sort of yeah. There's also probably a Dharma thing, You know, whether it's your Dharma to stick around or, or drop it.
1: Yes, exactly. And he had a strong intention from before that incarnation. Right. And out of compassion. Exactly. Out of compassion, he really wanted to be able to stay and, um, you know, not just his form wouldn't just melt away, but he would remain and share that knowledge. And so, you know, that momentum carried through even past his uh, full enlightenment. Yeah.
0: We're running out of time, but uh, I want to ask you one more question. That somehow my eyes keep falling on on the paper. I don't even know if you can answer this, but it's an interesting question. Perhaps one to leave everyone pondering. Um, we talked about karma and reincarnation, and um, you know the, that your tradition believes in both of those things. And I use uh, by by belief, I don't mean sort of the the deeper mechanics of those things have been understood and cognized by the custodians. Of, mm-hmm. of your tradition and other traditions as well. So, an interesting question about karma, which in the Gita Lord Krishna says is unfathomable because it's, it's to human intellect because it's so complicated. An interesting right. question about it is, who or what keeps track of it?
1: <laughs> uh, well, again, if the depths of the ocean, you know, pre-form, is connected to all form, and it's all-aware and all-knowing because it's connected to everything, then it's aware of all of that. Yeah, you could say that. I and mean, it, it doesn't have to contain it into, into a brain and nervous system.
0: Right? No. Couldn't. It's, it's too too much data for the human nervous system.
1: That's right, but the, you know, that's not a problem in the enfolded universe, you know, aspect of the universe.
0: Yeah. Yeah, if you think about it, I've used this example before. But if you take a, a gram of of hydrogen or nitrogen, some gas, and if you enlarge the atoms in it to the size of uncooked popcorn kernels, they would bury the continental United States nine miles deep. So there are that many atoms in a gram of of a gas, and if if that is, and each one of those atoms is like functioning perfectly, you know, for, according mm-hmm. to whatever laws of nature. It abides by, and, and the interactions in between them is, are com- perfectly coordinated. Okay, so if that's all happening in a single gram, and then if we extrapolate out to the whole vast universe, uh, obviously there's some kind of amazing intelligence uh, permeating and orchestrating this whole thing. So, you know, mm. c- keeping track of karma should be a piece of cake.
1: Yeah, of course. <laughs> I, 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 the only thing I, would, um, I I'm not ready to go with you on mm-hmm. is the orchestrating part.
0: Okay, and why? Yeah. Just why?
1: Because uh, part of enlightened intent is uh, allowing free will. Hmm. there's a there's another topic. Yeah. Yeah. Which. Yeah, and th- that's yeah. unfathomable. But you know, there's some kind of interaction between karma and free will, enlightened intent and free will, and so we're able to act out of confusion, despite the fact that you know the center of it all, the source of it all, is not confused.
0: Yeah. Well, by orchestrating, I don't think that necessarily contradicts the notion of free will. It doesn't mean it's it's predetermined or rigidly orchestrated. There are certain laws of nature by which everything functions, and free will could perhaps be operant within those laws of nature.
1: Yeah, there must be some sort of interaction between orchestration and free will, and I, I don't...
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting to ponder. It could be a whole other discussion. And then there are are spiritual teachers and spiritual people interested in spirituality, like Sam Harris, for instance, who say there is no such thing as free will, and they cite scientific evidence for this. And I don't know. To to me, it seems like there is, but what do I know?
1: Yeah, I think there's got to be some element of free will, even uh, though a lot of it really isn't, and it's more habits or, you know, neurology or, you know, a lot of, uh, other things that we we aren't aware of,
2: yeah. but
1: I still believe there is an element of, you know, just as the the ocean makes these waves, and you can point to these waves, each of them unique in their shape, yet they're not separate from the ocean. I still think that that uh, metaphor works in the case of free will as being some fleck of this consciousness in this wave, yeah, you know, that's operant
0: as well. Yeah, the way I like to think of it is no matter how conditioned we may be uh, and bound by that conditioning, we still have some wiggle room. And we can sort of exercise that wiggle room and, and move in the direction of greater freedom or greater bondage.
1: Well, and I just have to qualify what I said before mm-hmm. because that fleck of consciousness is not separate from the big awareness. Ultimately, no. Yeah, right. ultimately it's just not. Yeah. But there's a uh, talk in Buddhism of the two truths, relative truth, And uh, absolute truth. Mm -hmm. And if you fall to one side or the other, you're in trouble.
0: Yeah, you said that. I I actually... Okay, here you go, I found it. The Buddha (laughs) spoke of two truths, absolute and relative, and said that allegiance to only one will leave you in confusion. Can't focus on absolute truth and ignore the consequences of our actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's good.
1: Yeah, and so that's where... um, sometimes people have reached uh, some level of realization and they realize, oh, you know, I am, you know, the Buddha, this kind of thing. And, you know, it happens with Christians who say, I'm Jesus,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. right? And they get a little bit confused because their ego is still mixed up with that so that they think, I am the Buddha, or or, I am Jesus.
0: Ego aggrandizement happens.
1: Yeah, so rather than, let's say, Christ consciousness is all through me, just like everything and everyone, Mm -hmm. you know, and you don't take ownership of that, or Buddha mind Mm -hmm. is suffusing everything and everyone, so yeah, me too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So you don't put a boundary around that and try and own it or you're in trouble. That's when you get a mix-up with the absolute and relative in kind of a confused way. And there are examples of people getting in trouble.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay, well, we could probably keep going all afternoon and talking yeah. about other things, but this is been, <laughs> been a pretty good sampling of of uh you know who you are and what you're offering and all so maybe you could summarize what what it is you're offering that's somebody who's listening to this interview and and wants to find out more um you know what more is there for them to find out what yeah. what what things could they get involved in if they come to your website and um you know is there a cost involved, I and mean, just some practical points like that.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so if uh, somebody would want to uh, pursue any of this further, there's, of course, my book, which you can get anywhere, mm-hmm. <laughs> Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling? And maybe I'll hold it up this yeah, time sure. so people can recognize it. There it is. And there is His Holiness right there. Mm-hmm. Then on our website, we have... A list of upcoming events and they're uh, on both coasts and we have several different offerings during the year so one of them has more to do with sangha and another one has to do more with we have these three threads going through everything not surprisingly Uh, so the buddha strand i'm uh, defining as practice and so we have uh, some that are more focused on practice and then we will have some that uh, are doing kind of a combination of dharma and practice. So dharma is the map or the context in which these practices happen, so you can understand kind of how to use them and what they're really about, what they're doing. And then on the website, we've got the e-courses, and we've got two at the moment. Each of them are four installments, so you might do it in four weeks and then we can help you get started with a learning circle if you write to info at org, And we can see if there's somebody else in your community. And we can also send you a toolkit if you want to start one. Uh, let's see. Uh, we're uh, working on a workbook. We want to have all this follow through in lots of different ways. But at the moment, that's not uh, finished and there are these learning circles where you can get together with other people who are also interested in pursuing this. And you can pursue it together, which, uh, as I said, is just a reward in itself, actually.
0: And you mentioned you have these online webinars where you give individual attention to people and all.
1: Yeah, meditation coaching calls right. is what we call them. We have also had webinars where we, for example, take on the topic of forgiveness or mindfulness in relation to food. or We, just, we have a A few of them, and uh, right now they're sort of in a library, so I think they're accessible. Oh, and that reminds me... Some of them are on your YouTube
0: channel, actually. The thing with mindfulness and food is on there.
1: Yeah, and if you want to be led through a particular meditation, like a compassion meditation, Dong Lin that I talked about, or Shamatha or something like that, uh, let's say you've taken the e-course and now you just want to sit down and meditate and have somebody, you know, kind of lead you through it. I will tirelessly lead you through these meditations as many times as you click on that (laughs) because they're me leading the meditations.
0: (laughs) So on the website, there's a thing of you leading the meditation and a person can just listen in on that and go through it.
1: Yeah, there are visual ones, and uh, you can also have it audio. Uh, I personally prefer audio when I'm led through a meditation. Sure,
0: because you're not looking at your computer screen anyway. So
1: Yeah, right. yeah. and anyway, all you're going to see is me sitting there occasionally talking. You know. <laughs> yeah. So okay, uh, it good. won't be very interesting. Yeah, and yeah. I'm, I'm not a good dancer anyway, so I won't be doing that. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's one more thing that uh, we have to offer, and now I'm not remembering what it was. But it's on the uh, well website. So. Yeah, and if people want to go further, there are you know deeper studies and so on yeah. with this.
0: And it sounds very much like a work in progress too. That you're going to keep developing
1: things and offering more and writing books and you know. That's right. Yeah, this is very new. We only started namchak Foundation a few years ago. Um, even though I've been studying with Rinpoche for gosh. I don't know, 20-some years. Hmm. Yeah, I can't remember yeah. when we met. Yeah, so I'm sure there's like, a
0: thing where people can sign up and get notified by email when new things come out and all that.
1: Absolutely. Right. Just go to the website and you can sign up. Oh, there's um, we have a very active, lively Facebook page hmm. uh, where we have a lot of little mini videos. Also, Instagram and Twitter. So you can, uh, it's NAMCHOC Community is what you look on and look at. On Facebook. Uh, look for, Yeah, on Facebook. Yeah. So NAMCHOC Community is another way to tune in and get a little inspirational. This isn't that. Uh, we've got something new all the time.
0: Great. All right. Well, good. I'm glad that we were able to have this conversation and Me too. bring you I to the attention it. of more people.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate being on your show. And, uh, you know, I love the depth to which you like to go because I do too and you know asking those questions that are really beyond even our ability to fall upon a you know decisive answer but it's great to chew on them together yeah it is
2: <laughs>
0: mm. yeah thanks <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know I've been talking with Lama Tsomo and uh, this is an ongoing series of interviews or conversations or whatever you want to call if you'd like to be notified of New ones, as they are offered. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. If you haven't done that already, it, it helps us in terms of our relationship with YouTube. If we have a lot of subscribers, they actually give you more support. Um, and Or so you could sign up to be notified by email. There's a place for that on batgap.com. And... Uh, Oh, also the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com, you'll see who we have scheduled. And uh, if you like to listen to these live so you can submit questions, um, you'll see a live link that I usually make live about a day before the interview. And then there's a question form at the bottom of that page. And a bunch of other things. Just check out the menus and see what there is. So thanks for listening and watching. And next week I have Andrew Newberg. Um, we're we're going to be—he's a neurophysiologist of some sort. We're going to be talking about enlightenment in the brain and uh, neurophysiology of enlightenment and so on. So, thanks for listening. Thank you, Lama Tsomo. Good luck with My everything pleasure. you're doing. My
1: pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.